0: There is a group of people that every time I hang out with them as a group, I feel sad, lonely, and probably my favorite feeling word, uh, kind of icky. Uh, it's, and it's not n- nothing to do with them. I think that they're actually the kindest, probably, people uh, that I know. I think that they are probably the funniest people that I know. They have a really great sense of humor, uh, and I think that they're really uh, aware and competent, and and that they actually care about me. It's not them, it's me. And what I'm talking about right now, uh, this particular group, is actually pastors. And uh, when I hang out with a group of pastors, what I've realized that the reason I feel sad and lonely is because I'm spending a lot of time and a lot of energy comparing myself to them. I'm thinking about whether they're better pastors than me, whether they are better preachers, whether they're better at counseling, whether they know more than me and they're smarter than me. I'm thinking about how big their churches are and that's often the kind of the the question that's on everyone's mind is how many people go to your church or now it's how many people uh, watch your live stream because that's a really easy way for us to compare. And so I've realized that that's uh, often what I'm doing during those times. And uh, you might want to cycle and analyze me. And I encourage that because I need the help. Uh, But I want you to think about yourselves as well. Um, Hopefully when you're around pastors, you don't feel the way I feel. uh, Because I'm telling you, they are great people that really care about me. Uh, But when you're around uh, a particular group of people that probably has the most in common with you that have the most points of comparison, Uh, what do you do in your own mind? Where does your heart go in those times? Are you comparing yourself to them, trying to figure out where you rank in that particular group? If your primary identity is in your work, then that's what you're going to do Uh, with the people that you work with. And there's some really easy ways to do that. You can look at different metrics about your performance, or you could look at your salary and determine whether you rank higher than than the other people that you work with. Some places that's not as easy, like if your primary identity is as a parent. When you're around other parents, it's not like real specific ways that you can do that but you will find ways to rank whether you're uh, where you, where you are in terms of your parenting level and skill compared to those people that you are around if you're a student well you've got grades you've got SAT scores you've got your performance in sports that uh, you get points for things and so you got uh, a lot of different metrics that you can use to figure out where you rank. Some people ask, well, who's keeping score? And my answer to that is all of us are. It is a deep drive within the human heart to be able to know where that we stand with others. And I think it's because we have a deep need inside of us to know where we stand with God. We want to know, are we good enough? Have I done enough? Am I acceptable? Am I adequate before God? And as we have uh, uncertainty about that, then that uncertainty starts to play out. Well, if I'm not sure where I stand with God, at least I can figure out where I stand with other people. And this is going on within our hearts. Well, today I want to talk about keeping score and figuring out where we rank. And we're going to look at the Apostle Paul. And the remarkable thing about the Apostle Paul is that he couldn't care less about rank. He's found another way of living that doesn't involve keeping score. And as we see that from his example, we are going to see that the Apostle Paul is playing by a completely different game. First, let's begin just by looking at his life and how that Paul no longer is concerned about rank. We see it uh, first there in verse 12. I'm going to read it, then I'm going to explain it to you. In verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them... And went on to Macedonia. Paul's is saying is that he went to the city of Troas. It's just north of Ephesus. And he was actually on his way uh, to meet Titus. To find out what was happening with his dear friends in Corinth. When he was in Troas, he suddenly found out that there was lots of opportunity for really effective ministry. He was getting preaching Invitations in the synagogue. People were taking him into their homes, and people were responding to the gospel. This was an incredible opportunity for the gospel, also an incredible opportunity for Paul to score a lot of points. If Paul was looking for ranking in the, uh, comp- in the best apostle competition, then Troas is the place to just dominate. Like, he just could just Pad his resume there with all of his conversion numbers that he had. All of the respect and, and uh, the way, ways in which people would just acknowledge his effectiveness as apostle. If he wanted that, if that's what he cared about, then he would have stayed in Troas. But Paul says he just walked away from all of that. He just gave it up because he cared so much about his friends in Corinth. He couldn't focus on himself because he wanted to know how they were doing and he had to go and he had to meet Titus and find out, get this report about his friends in Corinth. So he didn't care about the different uh, metrics that might be used to measure his ranking as an apostle. He was willing to give all of that up. And then Paul describes His relationship with God and how that with God he's no longer concerned about ranking either. In verse 14, he says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. He says, God in Christ leads us in triumphal procession. He's talking about a victory parade. We still do this today. When people win a championship, uh, they have a victory parade. Well, this is a Roman triumph, and you can still see images of this uh, carved in like archways, different places of a military victory parade. And what would happen is that the, the generals would lead this parade with the soldiers behind them uh, going through the city as a way of celebrating their power and their might and their victory. And at the end of that parade, they would have prisoners of war from the people who had been conquered. They would be tied up and they would be uh, dragged along at the back of the parade uh, so that when they arrived at the capital city and were presented to the king, it would be a way of showing their might in celebrating their victory. During that time, what they would do is they would burn incense. And that incense would be a fragrance that would fill the streets. Well, if you're on the side of the uh, winning uh, army, then that fragrance is going to smell absolutely beautiful. You're going to love it because it reminds you of the victory that, you, that your team, that your army, that your country has won. But if you are the defeated people, uh, then you're going to smell that incense and you're absolutely going to hate it. You're going to be disgusted by it. We are the same way. If you see your team in a victory parade, you will say, wow, look at how much fun that they're having. What a fun uh, group of people. You're so excited for their victory. But if it's any other team, especially if it's a team that beat your team, you're going to say, What a bunch of drunks and losers. And I can't believe that they're throwing that trophy over the water like that uh, because I just can't stand the way that they're acting. Your response to the parade totally depends on your heart and where you stand in relation to that team. When Paul puts himself in the victory parade, he says, He's not a general. He's not a soldier. He's actually one of the captives. One of his favorite terms, besides being an apostle, is that he's a prisoner of Christ. So he's part of the parade, but he's not one of the ones who actually contributed anything to the victory. He's one of the people who have been conquered. And so he puts himself all the way last because he doesn't care about ranking. But at the same time, he says, however you respond to me shows whether you are on God's side or you are against God, whether you rejoice in God's victory or whether it is repulsive to you. Paul has this very unusual mixture of of self-confidence But also willingness to to give up things that are going to boost his status. He, he, He knows exactly where he stands with God. And yet he's willing to accept all of the suffering and difficulty in his life. I have a feeling that if Paul were with you, he wouldn't be giving you his resume. Instead, he would be showing you his heart. That he would be present with you. That he wouldn't be worried about whether you're going to accept him or not because he knows already where he stands. He's the kind of person that actually all of us love to be around and the kind of person that all of us want to be. Paul says it is possible to get to the point in your life where you're no longer worried about rank where you no longer have to obsess with keeping score. He says the way to get there is to understand that the rules of the game has changed. Not so much the rules. The rules have kind of stayed the same, but the game itself has changed. And one way that I can think of to explain this is uh, by the show Ted Lasso. So about six years ago, NBC Sports made these videos on YouTube about an American football coach who goes to uh, coach uh, European football, which we call soccer. And the, sort of the premise is that he thinks that he can just keep all the rules the same based on American football because it's both, they're both called football. And so uh, someone kicks the soccer ball uh, over the goal and over the fence, and he says, Three points! <laughs> And they say, zero points. And he'll say things like, we are going to play hard for all four quarters. And they say, there, there's two halves. And he's like, we're going to give uh, our very best until, we, whether, when, until someone wins or loses. And then they say, or it ends in a tie. And so the whole uh, show, uh, or at least the, the premise, is that he's learning a brand new game. And Paul is saying the same thing, that there's an old way, a way of keeping score, and then there's a new way of finding acceptance before God. So first of all, the old way, the way of keeping score. We would call it the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. What he's talking about is the the first three quarters of our Bibles, the Old Testament that is most clearly defined by the Ten Commandments. If you want to just figure out, uh, have sort of like the, the high water mark of the Old Testament, that's it in God giving the Ten Commandments. And he says, that way is all about keeping score. He says, if I were keeping score right now, what I would do is I would be going out of my way to prove all of the apostle points that I have scored with you. And one way he would do that is by getting letters of recommendation. Chapter 3, verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? This is a practice that we still have today, writing letters of recommendation for people applying to school or to job, to a job, a way of kind of writing about what are their skills and what are their character and and things like that by people who know them well if you've applied to school or to a job uh, anytime recently you will realize you will know uh, probably um, how sad and lonely and icky uh, that makes you feel because what you're doing is you are uh, literally ranking yourself or, or writing down as many points as you can possibly think of so that other people can rank you in a way of and you get letters of recommendation from different people as a way of trying to boost those points and I understand there's a necessary part of our system it's been here for all this time and it continues to be I mean how else are you going to know who to hire or who to let into your school is a normal way of doing things but Paul says That's part of the old way of doing things. If he were to ask for letters of recommendation, it would mean that he's just trying to boost up his points as an apostle, that he is working really hard to keep score. And he says that's an old covenant way of thinking. He takes the letters of recommendation and he applies them to the letters that were written on stone In verse 3, he says, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. The Old Testament was written on tablets of stone. It's an external metric that is used to determine Are ranking before God, and it is uh, conveniently just like the metric system, uh, based in the number ten. So you know that if you obeyed all of the ten commandments, then you could score a perfect ten. The problem is that any time that there is some uh, system that is written in stone outside of us, we are always going to lose. We are always going to fail. That's true of the Ten Commandments. That's true of your SAT scores. Uh, Unless I guess you get a perfect score, but so did lots of other people get a perfect score. (laughs) It's true of your grades. If you're graded on a curve, sometime you're going to be the best. But one of the problems with being the best is that you have to keep being the best in order to maintain the best. And so even if you're Tom Brady and you can throw trophies off boats, Uh, There will be a day uh, when he is no longer the best. If the law is written in your fitness tracker, then you are going to lose eventually. No matter how many days you successfully get those steps in, there's going to be a day where you fail. And if you're doing it every day, then you're just going to increase it. and You're going to keep increasing it until eventually you fall short. That is the problem with any sort of external law. Every time that we try to keep score, we realize that we are going to fall short. There was an article this week in The Reporter uh, and the the police chief was talking about how that he loves data. And uh, he was looking at the data and he realized that Lots more people were getting parki- parking tickets. And maybe some of you got one of those letters on your windshield. And that's uh, just an illustration to say the, the more that the law increases, the more that there's letters that are external to us, the more likely we are going to violate that law. So that's the old way of keeping score. And Paul says in that way, all of us always ...are going to fall short. But he says that it doesn't have to be that way. He says that there is a new way... ...where we can stand confidently... ...before each other... ...because we can stand confidently before God. And rather than having to do with rank... ...it has to do with relationship. He says this really interesting phrase in verse 2... ...you yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Uh, Scribes writing, you know, uh, copying the Bible into different uh, manuscripts so that it could be distributed had trouble with that, our hearts, because it's such a weird phrase. And later he's going to say, you know, it's written on your heart. So why is he saying it's written on our hearts? What he's saying is that we love and know you. We know you at your very worst. We know what you could be and we know who you are right now and we have embraced and accepted you. We have affection for you. We are sad when when we aren't in relationship with each other. We have you intimately on our hearts. What Paul is saying is that if you want... To get letters of recommendation, that means you're throwing away this entire relationship. You're going back to an old method of ranking and scorekeeping. Embrace this new method of relationship. What I've discovered is as uncomfortable as I've sometimes felt when I'm with groups of pastors is that I love being with individual pastors That in those times that we can share fellowship with each other, that we can relate to each other, I feel seen, I feel heard, and I feel known. And that's what the kind of relationship that God is inviting you into. Relationship not based on external point keeping or ranking, but on a relationship of the heart where God relates directly to you. This is what Paul calls the new covenant. In verse 6, the end of verse 5, But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The old covenant written in stone, external way of ranking people, new covenant written on the flesh of your heart in internal intimate relationship with God. Paul says that instead of ranking you based on something outside of you, he's actually put his spirit inside of you. And he says he's lit, written the law on your hearts. Which is not just another way of saying that you've memorized the 10 commandments or that you have this feeling about the 10 commandments. It's a way of saying that God has taken that law as if you have completed it and perfectly fulfilled it and he's actually put it within you. And the way that he can do that is because Jesus Christ himself completely and perfectly fulfilled the law. God didn't necessarily change the rules. God certainly didn't do away with the rules. What he, ra- what he did instead was send someone who could perfectly obey them. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but I have come to fulfill it. You look throughout Jesus' life and there were lots of opportunities for Jesus to build up his points as a Messiah. There are things that Satan asked him to do that would have brought great crowds. There were things that his family and his disciples asked him to do that would have made people think really highly of him and he would have had all of these points, but Jesus didn't care about any of that. What Jesus cared about was obeying his Father. He never put anyone before his Father. He never worshipped a single idol, whether externally or within his own heart. Every time God's name was on his lips, he said it with reverence and with love. He transformed our understanding of the Sabbath and he obeyed it in the perfect way that no one before him had ever done. He honored his father and his mother. He, both his father and his mother on earth and his father in heaven. He never murdered anyone. He was never even angry with anyone within his heart without just because He was always full of love and justice toward everyone. He never uh, had an adulterous or lustful thought about a woman. He never coveted something that was never his own. He never spoke a lie. Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled all ten of the commandments. And then when he died on the cross, he said, It is finished. It is complete. I scored a perfect, he wouldn't say this, but I'm saying this. Jesus scored a perfect 10 and fulfilled the law so that through his death, he could institute a brand new covenant in which the Holy Spirit takes that law that Jesus fulfilled and applies it to our own hearts. Paul's question throughout this text is who is sufficient who's adequate, who's done enough to be a a minister of Christ, to to stand before God, to be able to be done with this game? His answer is no one except Jesus. But because Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law and applied it to our hearts, we can now confidently stand before God and others. Verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves, To claim anything as coming from God, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. All of this is God's work applied to us. So my advice to myself, and one I tried to apply as I hosted a group of pastors here this last Friday, is that all of that ranking stuff is the old way of thinking all of this comparison and everything else, I'm always going to lose that game. And thanks be to God, I don't have to play it. When you start feeling those things, remember that that's the old game. Now you're in a new game, a game in which Jesus Christ has made you sufficient. He's made you adequate. He's done enough. And because he's now in your heart, you can stand with confidence before God and confidence before others no matter what happens. One of my favorite ways of explaining this, and I know I've used this before in sermons, but it's as if God wrote out Jesus' entire resume, his, uh, his birthright and his history and everything that he's accomplished. He took all of that that. It, is unlike any other resume that has ever been written. And then next to Jesus' name, he put my name or put your name. So that that's the kind of confidence you can have when you stand before God. Notice it has nothing to do with me or my performance. It has nothing to do with your giftedness or anything else. It has only to do with what Jesus Christ has already accomplished and by his spirit is now applying to our hearts. Thanks be to God that we no longer have to worry about our rank because we now have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen.